want to welcome those who are listening to us by podcast or by our City Church app. And also want to welcome those of you who are visiting us for the first time this morning here uh, on Easter Sunday. It is great to have you guys with us today uh, on Easter. My name is Jeff Kincaid. I'm the lead pastor here at City Church. You met Sean Little just a moment ago. He's our teaching and community pastor. And then uh, that was Jake Fuller and uh, his band leading worship. And if you guys would, just show them your appreciation. They'll be able to, to hear that. I realize that a lot of you have traveled a long way to be uh, with family this morning, and I'll bet some of you have found that the older your kids get uh, and the farther that they spread apart, it gets more difficult, doesn't it, to get everybody together, not to mention more expensive to get everybody together on a holiday like Easter. And sometimes you just have to do what you have to do to get them together. A man in Phoenix uh, called his son in New York just a few days before Easter, and he said, man, I hate to ruin your day, but I have to tell you that your mother and I are divorcing. Forty-five years of misery is enough. Pop, what are you talking about, his son said. The man said, he can't, we can't stand the sight of each other any longer. We're sick of each other, and I'm sick of talking about this. So you call your sister in Chicago and tell her. Frantic, the son called his sister, and she explodes on the phone. Like heck, they're getting divorced, she shouts. I'll take care of this. She calls her dad in Phoenix immediately, and she screams at her, fa- at her father, you are not getting divorced. Don't do a single thing until I get there. I'm calling my brother back, and we'll both be down there tomorrow. Until then, don't do a thing. The old man hangs up the phone. He turns to his wife, and he says, okay, the kids are coming for Easter, and they're paying their own fares. Now what are we going to do at Christmas? However you got here this morning, uh, we're just glad that you're here. Thanks so much. Whatever your motivation, as I said, we're just glad you're here. I want to approach Easter this morning uh, from a different angle than some of you might have expected. I realize that there are a lot of people here who come to church on Easter as part of their sort of yearly tradition, and many of those people don't come uh, either at all or very often throughout the rest of the year. And listen, I'm not throwing shade. I'm not, I'm not judging anybody. I was one of those people, too, many years ago before I uh, came to believe in Jesus. So don't, please don't feel like I'm judging you when I say that. But since you come every Easter, I suspect that most of you are familiar with the account of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection because you hear it every year when you come, right? And yet, it still really hasn't taken hold in your heart. Like it hasn't, it hasn't turned your world upside down yet. And some of you are thinking, okay, that's kind of extreme, turning my world upside down. But, but listen to this. Uh, D.A. Carson, he's a, he's a theologian, he's a professor of the New Testament. He once uh, said this. He said, the cross and the resurrection tie together as the turning point of the ages on which all of history swings. Now think about that. Because that is, I mean, that is some statement. The turning point of the ages on which all of history swings. Do you get what he's saying? He's saying that the resurrection is more important than anything we might otherwise consider momentous in human history. He's saying it's more important than the invention of the printing press, more important than the birth of the United States, more important than the invention of the telephone, 
more important than the invention of the personal computer, the internet, the cell phone, or even the Snuggie or the Slanket. Okay, I thought that was a lot more funny than you guys just laughed. I, I, seriously, come on, give that a laugh. I'm gonna, we're going pro, to try this again, okay? Now, here we go. And can I just tell you something? The first service wasn't very smart. They didn't get this. So show that you guys are a lot smarter than that service. Okay, more important than the personal computer, the Internet, the cell phone, or even the Snuggie or the Slanket. Okay, thank you. Good, good. That makes me feel a lot better. All of those were... He- Huge moments in human history. Maybe not the Snuggie or the Slanket, but the rest of them were huge moments in human history. D.A. Carson is saying that Christ's death and resurrection is bigger, more significant, more world-changing than anything else that we would otherwise consider uh, momentous. But the thing is, its its importance hasn't gotten a hold of you yet. Like it, it, for some of you, it, it just hasn't taken hold of you, kind of taken you by the throat, and then just turned your life upside down. Why? Why hasn't it done that? Well, as I said, um, I don't think it's because you don't know the story of the resurrection. I think for some of you, it's that you doubt its truth. It seems incredulous. In living... As we do these days in an age of cynicism and doubt, you wonder, how could anyone believe a story like that? Some of you uh, may know of the author Salman Rushdie. You may even remember that back in the early 90s, he wrote a book called The Satanic Verses. Anybody remember that? Raise your hand if you remember that. Okay. Wrote a book called The Satanic Verses. It prompted the Ayatollah Khomeini to issue a fatwa calling for Rushdie's assassination because his book was believed to be uh, blasphemy against the prophet Muhammad. Soon after the fatwa was issued, Rushdie said these, uh, I think, surprising words, but they're as true, perhaps more so today, as they were at the end of the 20th century when he wrote these words. We'll put them up on the screen so you can read them with me. The heart, he says, of what they're angry about is not the specific insults. It's to do with the whole notion of doubt. Doubt, it seems to me, is the central condition of a human being in the 20th century. One of the things that has happened to us in the 20th century as a human race is to learn how certainty crumbles in your hand. We cannot any longer have a fixed, certain view of anything. The table that we're sitting next to, the ground beneath our feet, the laws of science, they're all full of doubt now. Everything we know is pervaded by doubt and not by certainty. Now, I don't know what your reaction to that is, but to some degree, I think Salman Rushdie was right. That is to say that doubt, generally speaking, is one of the hallmarks of the present age. As we look around the world, everything seems to be in flux. Everything seems to be in question. Everything is in doubt, let alone something that happened over 2,000 years ago. So instead today of telling you about something that you already know about, I want to introduce you to somebody. I want to introduce you to a guy who is just like many of us here today. His name is Thomas, Doubting Thomas, we often affectionately call him because we feel like he's one of us. You know, we get him. 
Thomas the honest skeptic. Thomas the pop hero in an era of doubt and unbelief. Thomas is the patron saint of the present age in which we live. We understand Thomas because uh, we also have uh, many doubts. And so this morning, I want to introduce Thomas to you, and I want to trace with you Thomas's pilgrimage from doubt, just like many of you have today, about the resurrection. I want to trace Thomas's pilgrimage from doubt to faith. And so if you have a Bible, if you brought a Bible today, electronic Bible, old school, hard copy, whatever you have, uh, turn with me in it to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. And if you don't have a Bible, don't worry about it. We'll put the verses up on the screen for you so that you can read them. But if you will, turn to John chapter 20 and verse 24. And I want to begin by introducing Thomas to you first as Thomas the absentee. Thomas the absentee, verse 24. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, that's a word that means twin. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, he's talking about the twelve original disciples. Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. Okay, there's Thomas the absentee. This sets up the whole passage, the whole episode that we're going to see today. Jesus has been crucified. He's been buried. He's been raised from the dead. And he has physically appeared to the other surviving ten disciples. Now remember, twelve disciples uh, before Jesus dies on the cross, except one named Judas gets hung. He hangs himself, right? So there's 11 disciples left, okay? So Jesus has been crucified. Uh, he's been buried. He's been raised from the dead. He's physically appeared to those surviving disciples. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but for one week after the first Easter of the 11 surviving disciples of Jesus, 10 of them were believers, and one was an unbeliever, namely this guy, Thomas. Now, Why was Thomas an unbeliever? What was the reason for this disparity between the belief of the ten and the unbelief of the one, Thomas? Well, the original reason for Thomas's unbelief was really a very purely pragmatic one. He was absent when Jesus came. Now, we don't know why he was absent. The text doesn't tell us. We don't know whether his absence was deliberate or not. We don't know whether he stayed away because of his disillusionment and depression over the crucifixion of Jesus. Because, frankly, the crucifixion of Jesus seemed to completely obliterate any chance that Jesus was who he said he was, the Messiah of the world, and who Thomas believed he was. Crucifixion seemed to obliterate that. Thomas may have been depressed, disillusioned because of that. Or it could have been that he was unavoidably detained by a touch of the flu. Maybe he was detained by family matters, maybe by business concerns. We just don't know the reason. But we do know that on the first crucial Easter day, when Jesus came into their midst, Thomas wasn't there. There's Thomas the absentee. That's how I wanted to introduce him to you first. Now, second... I want to introduce you to Thomas the doubter. Maybe we could say it this way, Thomas the skeptic. Thomas the doubter, Thomas the skeptic. Fortunately, uh, Thomas didn't repeat his mistake, and in the goodness of God, uh, what Thomas missed the first time, he was given another opportunity to witness. Look at verse 24 again. Now, Thomas, also called Didymus, we just read this passage, one of the twelve was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, 
we have seen the Lord. And Thomas says, how wonderful. No, he, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. He says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe this. Now, for those of you who are interested in philosophy, what what Thomas is doing here is that he's expressing his epistemology. He's saying that the only way he can know that something is true is if he can see it with his own eyes and feel it with his own hands. And frankly, most people sympathize with and even respect Thomas for his insistence on firsthand sensory verification. Because most of us have had it drilled into us since we were children in school that we mustn't believe anything that is not amenable to our sight and to our hearing and to our touch. And so most people respect Thomas for that. And in that respect, Thomas was a man ahead of his time in that he personifies the scientific spirit of our day, the insistence on data which can be investigated by our five senses. Well, Jesus, uh, Jesus does condescend to Thomas's weakness just a little bit later. And he gives him the evidence for which Thomas is asking for in verse 27. Look there at verse 27. Then he, he's talking about Jesus, says, Then Jesus said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand. Put it into my side. And then he says, Stop doubting and believe. But... The story doesn't end there. Jesus, having yielded to Thomas's demand, goes on to, to rebuke him. Well, maybe, maybe we won't say he rebukes him. Maybe we'll just say that he pronounces a blessing on those who didn't make you know, this demand that they could only believe if they saw. And I want you to look at verse 29. We'll see this. He, Jesus told him, Thomas, he says, Because you've seen me, you've believed. So he's kind of like, great, glad you did. But he goes on and he says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, I want you to be very careful here. Okay, I want you to be very careful about what you just, leave that up on the screen if you would for just a moment. Because I want you to be, I want everybody to be very careful about what you just read. Jesus is not saying, blessed are those who have no evidence and yet believe. That is not what he's saying, okay? He's saying, blessed are those who have believed without sight. In other words, blessed are those who have a different epistemology than Thomas, who don't think that the only way to know something is true is to see it with your own eyes. See, it's very different. Very different thing to say, blessed are those who have no evidence and yet believe, and to say, blessed are those who have believed without sight. Those are very different things. Hear me on this. Faith is not faith without evidence. Faith is not, it's not believing crazy, impossible things against the evidence. That is not faith. And, and this is very important that you understand this, okay? Faith is not faith without evidence, but it is faith without sight. Now, I want to say that again. I want to make sure you get this. Faith is not faith without evidence, but it is faith without sight. Now, I wonder, I wonder if we're all clear on this. In fact, I wonder if we're all 
clear in our minds that faith and reason are never set like against each other in the Bible. Never. Faith is always thought to be reasonable and rests upon a reasonable foundation. Now, to be sure, faith goes beyond reason, but it's not believing in spite of or against reason. Now, I I want you to understand that although faith and reason are never contrasted, I do want you to understand that faith and sight are often contrasted. Believers in Christ are called to walk by faith, not by sight. Jesus said, blessed are those who believe who have not seen. But he's not saying, he's not saying blessed are those um, who have no evidence and believe. Are we all clear on that? Do you guys get where I'm going? Do you understand? Say yes. Just say yes. Tell me you're still awake and you're not just thinking about the Easter uh, lunch or something. Just tell me that you're awake. Just say we're awake. Okay, good, good, good. Okay. Now, because... You know, this is so very important for you to understand. I, I just want to go a little bit deeper on this idea with you. And I would like to suggest to you that there are two equally reasonable grounds upon which uh, you can believe anything. Upon which, maybe I should say it this way, upon which to believe anything. Two equally reasonable grounds upon which to believe anything. And I want to just take it out of the realm of Christianity for just a moment because all of us are believers in something. Even if you don't believe in the resurrection, all of us believe a lot, uh, a lot of things, right? Okay. And there are two bases upon which we can reasonably believe what we believe. One is your own personal investigation. Like you saw it, you touched it, You felt it, you heard it, you smelled it, whatever, and you're like, okay, I believe. For instance, like, let's say that you have a friend, maybe just a neighbor that tells you he's got a pink unicorn living in his attic. Well, you you will need to go personally uh, investigate that to believe it, right? Or maybe you could just recommend him to a good psychiatrist, one or the other, but you've got to personally investigate it in order to believe it, Okay. But here's the thing. There are many things, in fact, I would even go so far as to say most things, that we can't personally investigate, but we still believe. And in those cases, when we can't personally investigate it, but we still believe, we base our belief on an equally reasonable ground, you know, equal to personal investigation. And that is the testimony of others who are credible witnesses the testimony of others who are credible witnesses. So let me give you some examples. For instance, I suspect all of us here in the room believe that the earth is a a sphere, though none of us in the room, I'm willing to bet, have ever orbited the earth high enough to have seen that with our own eyes. We've seen pictures. We've seen globes. But those are merely representations uh, of, of what someone else has seen. But we deem the witnesses of the earth's uh, sphere credible enough to believe, right? Okay. Um, Think for just a minute about all of the people and all of the events in history that you couldn't believe existed if you had to personally verify every single one of them. Like, let me give you some examples. Socrates. George Washington. Babe Ruth, the Civil War, 
You guys get my point, right? It would be very limiting if you only believe what you can personally see, touch, hear, smell, or see, because there are many things that you can't personally verify, but that you depend upon the testimony of credible witnesses who were there and wrote about it or took pictures of it. Now, when we come back to Thomas, just just to come back to him here, um, Thomas could have and, frankly, should have believed on the testimony of his fellow disciples, because he knew these men. He knew these ten guys. He knew they were sensible people. Several of them were hard-headed fishermen. He knew they weren't liable to hallucinations. That wasn't their personality type. He knew they were down-to-earth men. He knew they, they were honest, that they weren't given to lies. He knew their integrity. He knew their good sense. So he should have uh, believed them. God's way of faith is not groundless. It's based upon the testimony of credible witnesses. Now, so here's what we need to do. Okay, if it's based on the testimony of credible witnesses, we've got to ask ourselves then about these eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus. Are they credible? Perhaps, maybe they're charlatans who came up with a crazy story that for over 2,000 years, people have foolishly believed. Maybe they're not credible. Let's talk about that for a minute. I want to give you five quick reasons why the eyewitnesses' testimony of Jesus' resurrection is credible and perfectly reasonable to believe. Now, I'm not going to put these five things on the screen. You're going to have to write these down or you know, make a note uh, on your iPhone or something. But I'm, uh, I want to give these to you. And these, I'm going to give them to you pretty quickly. Here's number one. Many of these witnesses of Jesus' resurrection were tortured and even executed for their testimony of Jesus' resurrection. Now, let me ask you something. Who in the world, other than a crazy person, would be willing to be executed for something that they knew to be a lie? So, like the disciples, you know, they all come together. They say, let's tell a lie, and um, let's just keep it going. And people come along, they say, well, we're going to execute you if you say that Jesus was resurrected. And they're like, well, we'll just keep telling the lie. Go ahead, execute me for a lie. Who, who would do that? Who would do that other than, a perfect, other than a crazy person? Here's number two. If you were to read just a few verses before this passage, you would find that the first witness of the resurrected Jesus was a woman, Mary Magdalene. Now, you need to understand that women in that very secular culture were the least respected people in the culture. Now, why then, if this were a hoax, would the disciples have wanted Jesus appearing to a woman of all people? That would have reduced the story's credibility. Number three, as they told their stories, these disciples told their stories in the Gospels that some of them wrote and some of them Uh, reported them to other people who wrote these Gospels. Uh, The disciples included stories about themselves that made them look foolish and even cowardly. Now, if you're perpetuating a myth to give you power and prestige, why would you want to make yourself look stupid? Who wants to air their dirty laundry in public if you don't have to? Peter, for instance, isn't afraid that the story of his threefold denial of Jesus, he's not afraid that that would be included. Now, if if he were lying about this whole thing, he would have wanted to hush that up, but he didn't. He included it. 
Number four, had these guys been lying, their credibility would have been quickly crushed because these gospels were written in the same generation, uh, in the same generation that the resurrection was supposed to have happened. In other words, people would have still been alive to say, look, I, I was there, I was there at the resurrection, or at what they called the resurrection, and it didn't happen. Like, it wasn't a resurrection. Right? So these, these gospels weren't written hundreds of years later. They were written within a generation of people who were still there. And if they were lying, it would have been crushed. And then number five, we learn later in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6, or as Donald Trump calls it, 1 Corinthians, that there were over 500 people to whom Jesus appeared after he was raised from the dead. 500 people. Now think about that. Over 500 people saw the resurrected Jesus. What's the significance of that? Well, do any of you know uh, the circumstances of Muhammad's first miraculous revelation that he was a prophet of Allah? Anybody know? He was in a cave alone when he claims that the archangel Gabriel appeared to him. Now, what's the problem with that? No one can verify his claim because no one else was there to see it. Kind of convenient, wouldn't you say? Any of you know where Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, was when he claimed that he received a visit from the angel Moroni? Anybody know? He was alone. And of course, no one could verify his claim either because no one else was there to see it. Tough to verify if no one else is there. Anybody know where Siddhartha Gautama, also known as Buddha, was when he says that he attained enlightenment? Anybody know? Yeah, you probably can guess. He was sitting under a tree alone. Now, of course, in, in that situation as well, no one could verify his claim because no one else was there to see it. You see, here's what I want you to understand, is that no other so-called religious leader's miraculous calling was able to be witnessed and verified by other people. Only Jesus had the audacity to perform his miracles, including the resurrection, in public to over 500 people so that other people could verify his claim. My point in all of this is that it's perfectly reasonable to believe in the resurrection on the testimony of the many credible witnesses who were there to see it. And if that's not enough, frankly, you can't believe anything else in history that you haven't seen. That's Thomas the Doubter. And I haven't left myself really very long for what will be a very brief third and and last point. We've looked at Thomas the absentee. We've looked at Thomas the doubter uh, and how he ought to have believed on the testimony of credible witnesses in the way that we ought to believe on the testimony of credible witnesses. But third here, I want to introduce you as we close to Thomas the believer He's moved from an absentee to a doubter. Now he's going to move to a believer. And I want to draw your attention to uh, the fact that as soon as he believes, 
he worshiped. Look at verse 27 again. Then Jesus said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand. Put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, Very simple expression of faith. My Lord and my God. It's very obvious that Thomas was a sincere doubter and a sincere seeker. He wasn't, like he wasn't playing games with the truth. He wasn't laying down conditions on which he was prepared to believe for fun. He wasn't the kind of person who said, well, you know, whatever evidence that you're able to produce, I'm still not going to believe. To the contrary, he was very earnest so that as soon as he saw, he believed, and as soon as he believed, he worshiped. Do you know why he worshiped? Because that's your only option when you encounter the resurrected Jesus. That's the only option you have to worship. That's Thomas the believer. So, okay, so how do we conclude? Well, I want to conclude like this. It's, it's that the ground of Christian faith is the testimony of credible eyewitnesses. And that is what the whole of the New Testament is. Many people throughout history believe in Jesus Christ today. Not because we've seen him with the outward eye, but because we've seen him with the inward eye. Through the testimony of those who did see him with the outward eye. That's why we read... You know, one of Jesus' disciples uh, wrote a, a letter later on in the New Testament, and he starts this letter like this. In fact, from the, you know, the very start of his, of his letter, he says this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, we have looked at, and our hands have touched. He's talking about Jesus here. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. That was Jesus. We have seen it, and we testify to it. And why do they do that? So that you also may have fellowship with them. So that you can be part of the community of people who, yes, believe in Jesus' resurrection, who, uh, who've been so affected by Jesus' resurrection that it's turned your life upside down, that it like grabbed you by the throat and it wouldn't let you go. This guy was resurrected from the dead. He must be who he said he was. He must be God. And if that's the case, I need to give him the entirety of my life. And that will turn your life upside down. May I suggest to you that the thing that you need to do more urgently than anything else is read the New Testament for yourself. I am amazed at the number of otherwise intelligent people that I have met who have rejected Jesus Christ without ever having read the foundation documents, or at least not since they were a little kid in Sunday school. If the resurrection is the most important event in all of human history, and if believing it will change your life here on earth for the better, and it will give you life after death as well, the most urgent thing that you must do is to expose yourself to the testimony of eyewitnesses to this miraculous event. And one of those eyewitnesses was a man just like many of you 
a doubter, a skeptic, somebody who didn't come at this easily, a man named Thomas. Read the New Testament for yourself and listen to these men who claim, and these women, who claim to have either seen Jesus personally or claim to be recording the experience of those who had seen him. And I believe that if you're an honest doubter, if you're an honest seeker, as Thomas was, I believe that the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of truth, will use the apostolic eyewitnesses and testimony in the New Testament to create faith within you so that you see the reasonableness of it as you have never seen it before. In seeing, you will believe. and believing, I trust you will worship and you will fall on your face before Jesus with the words of Thomas on your lips. My Lord and my God. Uh, would you pray with me? Lord Jesus Christ, you know, it is. It, it, it's hard to believe something that happened 2,000 years ago, so, so miraculous. And frankly, you know, Lord, if we, if we go out on the Internet, if we go to bookstores, I mean, there's so many people that are out there trying to uh, prove that this did not happen. And yet, Lord, it seems like even all the work that they go to to prove that it didn't happen proves the significance of the resurrection. Lord, I know that in the room today that there are people who, who doubt. They're, they're very sincere. You know, they, they want to know the truth, but they doubt the truth of the resurrection. Lord, I pray that today, that they, you know, and maybe, maybe not even today, maybe just as they pick up the New Testament and read it for themselves. I pray that the reliability of these witnesses, the credibility of these witnesses, I pray that that would become very clear to them and that you would, through your Holy Spirit, pierce them very deeply with the truth that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. He died for their sins. He was buried and he was raised from the dead as proof that he was who he said he was, the Messiah, not a Messiah, but the Messiah of the world. I pray that you would make that clear to them. Lord, there are also people here today, maybe they've been toying with this idea for a long time. And maybe, maybe today they've come to a place where they're convinced of this. Lord, I pray that in the privacy of their seats, in the privacy of their hearts, that they would acknowledge today that they're a sinner, like everyone in the world, and uh, that they believe that you are the only acceptable sacrifice for their sins. and that you were raised again as proof that you were the Messiah. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you that um, salvation isn't based upon moral performance, on my moral performance, because frankly, I'm not a good enough person to perform well enough to have a relationship with you. I'm just not. I thank you that it's by grace that you give me a relationship and everyone a relationship with you. It's by grace, by your work on the cross, not by our work, by your performance, not by our performance. Lord, for those that uh, here today that know and that believe the truth of the resurrection, Lord, I pray that you would pierce it with our hearts too, pierce our hearts with that too. Maybe anew. And that our lives would be turned upside down because of it. And so, our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray these things 
in your name. Amen.